This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 660, A Conversation with Brett Breeding. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. This is episode 660. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and today uh, it's our conversation with Brett Breeding. I recently got a chance to sit down with Brett and talk about his career in comics, how he broke in, certain projects he's worked on, certain collaborations he's had, um, various different things throughout his career, which is really interesting as a fan of his work. Um, We also kind of talk about the current state of comics, how comics have changed. Uh, So it's a very interesting conversation. We actually went, I think, almost an hour and 45 or so. So uh, strap in. Um, it's It's a long one, but it's an enjoyable one. Uh, Brett was a, a great sport and uh, he had a lot of interesting uh, perspectives and just some good stories to tell as well. So, hope you enjoy this. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again and let's jump right into the episode with Brett Breeding. Brett, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you today? Uh, I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm very excited to have you on. So let's go way back first. And uh, what when, what was your first interaction with comics when you were younger? When did it become part of your life? Uh, well, my first introduction to comics was at a local little mom and pop store in our neighborhood. Uh, came across a spinner rack of comics and saw a Space Ghost comic book sitting there. <laughs> Uh, Space Ghost was like one of my favorite things in the world to watch on Saturday mornings. Uh, I saw the comic book and had to have it, and that really is what introduced me to comic books. I didn't know what they were before then. I hadn't really seen them before, paid any attention. And um, that led me to just grabbing other things off of the racks. Over time, I enjoyed that one, and I started going back and finding other comics. I don't know what came after that specifically, um, I would grab a lot of stuff, different stuff, you know, Archie's, Archie's uh, hot stuff, comical stuff, superhero stuff. Um, I, I quickly kind of went away, oddly enough, considering you know the, what I'm most recognized for uh, in comics. I would go away from the DC comics. I, I didn't hmm. uh, enjoy a lot of the stories that felt very. Uh, made up and you know oh can Lois cut Superman's hair in this issue you know and, <laughs> and, you know there were there, they were like silly contrived stories and um, I, I started gravitating toward the Marvel stuff and I remember having a lot of Fantastic Fours and Spider-Man's Daredevil was a favorite as a kid um, I really got hooked on the Avengers early on. Thor was a favorite it continues to be my favorite character so I, I became very engrossed in the Marvel stuff more so than uh, any of the other books that I encountered. What kind of age would would you have been at this point in time? Well, probably about six, seven years old. Five or six, maybe. Uh, It was about the same time. I was born in 61, so Space Ghost, I think, was on in 65, 66. Um, About the same time, Batman... Uh, Adam West Batman was on television. It was a great time to be a kid in the mid '60s. I mean, the card, Saturday morning cartoons were fantastic. Uh, I had Batman on. Uh, Johnny Quest was on in the evenings at that time. Oh yeah. 
um, you know, it was a great, uh, great period to grow up in. Now, when do, when do you start drawing, or were you always kind of a, one of those kids drawing? Yeah, I was always drawing stuff, and, um, you know, a, a lot of stuff that I remember doing in school with some other friends that drew were uh, cars, you know, race cars. Uh, we called them rails back then, but uh, they were, you know, the long uh, uh, speed racer, well, not speed racer, like the comics, which actually was a favorite cartoon of mine as well. But... Um, cars were thing we do space scenes where i can remember in school we'd be drawing like taking the time to draw like the landscape and little ships and then all of a sudden you'd be drawing missiles or lasers or whatever coming out and then guys getting blown up <laughs> so you were almost creating this ongoing you know illustration of uh, you know like a little movie going on in one illustration by the time you were done it was you know all kinds of scribble and explosions and you know <laughs> drawn all over but it was constantly building and adding to it and i had a couple of friends in elementary school that like doing that you know drawing war scenes and uh, I tended to draw more alien and science fiction-y kind of stuff but um, you know I just enjoyed drawing and uh, took a lot of art classes in school um, anything it did you know it didn't have to just be drawing classes uh, you know I liked doing creative stuff um, I think I just like building things and creating things because I I enjoy working with my hands now doing wood and building cabinetry and and you know doing remodeling around my house and that kind of thing so i'm always doing something um you know i've done photography as a hobby when i was a kid and then at one point uh, back around 2000 i started doing it as a second career doing wildlife photography for a while um so it's it's just the idea of creating something i think it's not just the comics that uh, I gravitated towards, but I had a cousin that was uh, had had come over for a visit at some point, and we went over to this mom and pop store, and through me, he discovered comics. So comics kind of became our thing, and uh, we would get together on holidays and occasionally in the summer and stuff. And um, we didn't live near each other, but we would see each other, you know, several times a year, and we'd always spend the time talking about comics and reading comics, showing each other the comics we loved. Um, and he used to like to write and draw, and, and you know, I had ideas. I'd never say, you know, I would be a good writer, but I used to like to, you know, do mine more finished, and, and um, we would draw together. And I guess sometime about the point I was eight years old, I had really gotten into uh, uh, the Avengers, uh, specifically John Buscema's run, and John Buscema's run with Tom Palmer really stuck with me mm. at the time. I loved those stories. I loved that artwork, and um, I, I remember thinking, this would be a really cool thing to do. You know, I, this is what I want to do. I want to draw comic books. Uh, having no concept or idea that that was a real thing or how people went about doing it. Um, but it was just a lot of fun to, to read the books and uh, to talk about the stories and then to just try and draw our own characters, come up with our own characters or draw the ones, you know, that were in the comics. And um, I kind of stayed with it. I, I tried to get art classes in school uh, every chance I could. Um, at one point, my grand my grandparents raised me, and um, they, uh, they took me out of my local school and sent me to a uh, Catholic school in the ninth grade, a uh, really good high school in the area, really well regarded high school. And 
and uh, mainly because they were worried about drugs in public school, you know, and it's like the irony, the irony was in all the years I went to public school, I never had anybody come up and try to sell me any drugs. I, I knew kids, you know, that would have pot or whatever and would say, hey, I got some of this or what have you. But uh, I had to go to Catholic school to actually be approached by someone trying to sell me drugs. <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny. I guess they had uh, these kids had more money, so it, you know it was easier for them. But um, but what they didn't have were art classes, and uh, I kept going in wanting you know to take an art class. I knew what I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to be exposed to as much as I could, and I kept being told, well, you know, unfortunately, uh, you weren't able to get that this quarter, maybe next quarter, you know, it's uh, for freshmen, it's a little hard to get the electives that you want, and, you know, next year you probably have a better chance, and and this would go on, I'd be constantly put off, and they said, well, by your junior year, by your senior year, blah, 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 and it really became evident that there were no promises, there were no guarantees I would ever get the kind of classes that I wanted and I became very frustrated with that and one day I got up and, and walked very slowly up to the bus until I saw it take off without me and I turned around and went back home and said I missed the bus and I'm never going back to that school again and they put me back in the school I was in Wow! and I immediately got some art classes and that led to me going to uh, high school the following year at a vocational school taking commercial art you know where I studied uh, photography and printing and you know worked in the print shop which was next door and the photography shop which was next door and, and of course we did sign lettering I lettered trucks I lettered billboards on highways and I learned <laughs> how to do that and I learned how to do a lot of things that had nothing to do with drawing but so much of what I learned in that three years of being there I found different ways to apply once I did break into comics. Um, you know, I was using color holds when I first started with DC. I, I got a Justice League job uh, as an early assignment. The first year I was working for DC Comics, and a Green Lantern played heavily into it, and they allowed me to do color holds for his ring. I mean, it's it sounds like such a silly thing now because with computer coloring, you know, everybody's doing color holds. They it's, it's like a lot of these colors can't seem to hold back and resist the urge to turn everything into a color hold. And back then, it was something that was pretty much reserved just for covers. There's a little bit more control of the cover hmm. color. But, um, you know, I would, uh, you know, have the, the projection that coming from his ring being held in color and the editors loved that you know it was something different and i would use zipatone to you know make it look like it was airbrushed and you know try to give it a little bit more form and shape and um that came from understanding the printing process you know and and talking to editors and about you know what how can i go about setting this up you know to have it done i just want to hold this on you know the the yellow and the blue plate and uh you know so they kind of worked with me to to make that happen um you know i understood uh typesetting and a lot of other aspects and reproduction so that it, inking came easier to me i think because i knew i had a sense anyway of, of what should hold up in printing and and what may close up um so there was a lot of things that I learned, you know, in commercial art 
that was not why I went there. I used to bug my teacher for years. When are we going to get anatomy? When are we going to learn drawing? You know. <laughs> Finally, he gave it to us, and everybody hated me because we spent like three weeks drawing skeletons. You know, and it was like uh, it, it wasn't really what I was expecting either. But um, it was a lot of the other stuff that uh, that pops up now and then. Like, oh, I remember when we did this. How can I make that work? You know, now what can I do with that? Sure. Now, I, I was reading, uh, I was doing some research on you and reading some articles uh, or about you and interviews you've done in the past. And what I found was so fascinating, and maybe you can tell my listeners, is the, how you kind of got into comics is such an interesting kind of happenstance in terms of how you ended up working with uh, Bob Layton, which is, it's so, you know, kind of chance. Like, I, I don't even know how you'd replicate that. <laughs> Yeah, I worry sometimes about telling the story because I don't want to give people ideas like, oh, you know, I'm going to have people coming out of the woodwork calling me up. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I tend to believe, uh, you know, one of my favorite sayings is luck favors the prepared. Hmm. Um, you know, if you prepare yourself for when things happen, you're in a much better position to uh, take that opportunity and run with it. Um, I again through the classes that I took in high school and whatever I got involved with a, a local publication uh, wanted to do something with the high schools wanted to do a magazine that would circulate in the high schools that was produced contributed to by the students in those high schools it was something called the I and I ended up doing a comic strip in it that was really poor I had no idea what I was doing I just wanted to draw and uh, at the time, I remember John Byrne was working on Iron Fist. Um, there were a lot of cool visuals in there. I remember swiping. Um, you know, I, I basically was uh, taking things I had seen and just, you know, throwing together this silly concept just to basically do this strip that was like four panels in, a, in an issue. I can't remember how many we did. It wasn't very good. Uh, at least certainly not from the writing. It was all about doing the artwork for me, and uh, I was doing it all on my own. But it was an opportunity to get, you know, something in there. And I got some attention in high school, and I can't remember how it came about, but the, the local newspaper did, like, a Sunday feature on me. Uh, I heard about this kid that drew comics and, you know, liked to draw comics, I guess. Um, and so that kind of all led to you know, me uh, doing this strip as well that played a factor in it. And right after graduating high school, there was a local comic convention that Bob Layton and David Michelini were the featured guests at. And, of course, they were doing Iron Man. They had just come on to Iron Man within the last year. And it was a very popular book, and it was one that I really enjoyed. Uh, I was a fan of the work and the comic and was reading it a regular reader. So I went down to meet them and, you know, the old comic uh, shows, you know, I don't know how they were in the big cities, but in Delaware they were just little kind of informal affairs and um, it was real easy to, you know, get up and talk to people right there at their table and, and um, you know, spend a lot of time and I kept you know, picking Bob's brain about how to get into comics. And, and I was very naive. I used to think that I'd have to go to art school out of high school and I'd have to move to New York City and I'd be working in an office and all these kinds of things. And that experience meeting them kind of 
put in my head that but that wasn't the case you know they were they lived at home and they did their work at home and and uh you know bob uh had said something about using assistance and you know at some point you know if he ever needed another assistant he'd be happy to look at my work and so i thought well let me see if i could show it to him now so i walked 10 blocks down to where the publisher's building was and i grabbed some copies of the magazine from them and i went back to the convention and i showed a couple of things that i had done in the magazine to bob and it was kind of interesting because i was clearly swiping john byrne and he was working with john byrne on the champions at the time um so i don't know if that you know if he recognized any of of that or whatever but you know he took notice of what i was doing had a few nice words for me and um and i went on my way i i thought you know well hopefully at some point he'll remember me if he needs an assistant uh, not thinking that we hadn't exchanged phone numbers or anything like that, you know, <laughs> just uh, just happy to have gotten all the uh, input and advice that I had gotten from him. And about two months later, uh, I was taking my grandmother to the local mall and was waiting in the car for her. She was in the mall, and I see this little car come zipping in the road and, and doing a little loop up the parking lot in front of my car and in the cars Bob Layton and David Michelin and they park about 10 you know car spaces away from me and they walk in front of the car and they're heading into the mall and I thought they must live around here why would they be here and um, it never occurred to me and that they could actually be living in Delaware you know that's that they live, work for Marvel Comics they've got to work in New York City so I went home that day and I grabbed the phone book and I tried to look them up and I found one of them in the phone book <laughs> and I was holy cow and so I came up with this idea that how cool it would be to interview them for an article for this I magazine so I called the uh, publisher the, the editor there and I said hey look I've got this idea um, Marvel Comics wasn't the big thing you know it, it is now but people still knew Spider-Man and Captain America and the Hulk and you know a little bit what Marvel Comics was and I said there's this book these guys do and they, they live here and, and would it be okay if I interviewed them for the magazine he said sure you know no problem so that was my in for calling and introducing myself and asking you know if oh i'm sorry something something got some feedback there in my microphone um so that was my you know uh means of uh introducing myself and calling them up asking them if they would be willing to do the interview and uh, i spoke with david michelini and he's like well let me talk to bob but i think that would be okay and it was uh dave arranged it with bob and we set a time and i went over to dave's apartment and sat down with the two of them and talked you know interviewed them for this uh article and i was sincere about doing it i i thought it would be fun for the readers uh that these guys who were doing this you know big you know uh, comic book uh are here in little old delaware and i also was interested for myself in asking a lot of questions about you know working in comics and breaking into comics and about being you know what being an anchor was specifically and um 
you know, loving what he was doing with John Byrne, who was a favorite artist of mine at the time. And um, I guess the kinds of questions I was asking him, uh, he at some point said, well, would you like to try out to be my assistant? Apparently, his assistant had either quit or moved on, and he had an opening. He needed someone to help him with his backgrounds, and I jumped at the chance. I said, sure. So two days later, I went to Bob's apartment, and he showed me what he did and, you know, pages of Iron Man, which I believe at the time may have been Jerry Bingham had just started on the book. J.R. had left and hadn't come back yet. Mm. And uh, he sat down and he showed me what he did and the tools that he used. And they were different than the tools that I had learned about in school, you know, crow quills and uh, things like that. I mean, I had worked with brushes and, you know, rapidographs and markers, but, uh, you know, crow quill pens were a whole different thing to me. And I went to the store the next day. Well, I sat down there and used his tools to ink a couple of backgrounds. You know, he basically showed me what he wanted and then he wanted to see what I would do. And I inked a few panels of, you know, desks and backgrounds, windows and out. And he gave me a stack of pages and sent me home with me. He hired me there to, to do the backgrounds. Wow. So the next day I went, uh, that day actually I went home and went out to see the Muppet movie with some friends from high school. <laughs> and uh, we kind of went out and celebrated, had pizza. And, you know, it's like, wow, I just got into Marvel Comics, you know. And, um, you know, that wasn't too far from the truth. But uh, um, it just, it felt like, you know, I had really taken a step towards what I always wanted to do and to do it on something that I was enjoying, you know, uh, that, that I was a fan of. Um, I didn't really quite understand at that moment in time how big their run on Iron Man would be. Hmm. Um, but I knew that it was something I certainly loved and, uh, and would enjoy working on. And I went the next day and bought all the tools and, and you know, all the things that I needed and started that week. Uh, and I guess I continued to work for Bob for close to two years. When you first start working for Bob, I mean, like, what is it like? I mean, you go from being a fan to, you know, working in it now. Um, what, what, what was... The sense of like suddenly you're seeing the sausage be made. So was that exciting? Like again, what, what was that process like to kind of do that transition over to now you're in it? Now you're in the working in the industry. You're actually being part of something that you were up to you know just a month before, just enjoying. Like what was it that kind of the inside workings? What was that like to kind of learn what that was like from the inside? Well, I, I, I mean, I really only remember generalities, but the, the, the certain things that definitely stick with me are. Um, the learning curve of you know what I learning what I didn't know you know uh, uh, not just artwork wise um, and being exposed to other styles that other than those that I tried to emulate on you know on my own I was a fan of John Buscema and Tom Palmer as I said and I loved John Byrne's work and I loved uh, uh, George Perez's work I was a huge Joe Sinnott fan um you know, but uh, and I was becoming a Bob Layton fan. He was relatively new at the time, but I was also collecting champions and and had some of Bob's work and um, you know learning some of Bob's influences about Wally Wood and of course Dick Giordano, who I didn't know who he was at the time, but I was familiar with his work because some of the DCs that I did collect 
um, were in fact Dick Giordano or Dick Giordano with Garcia Lopez or Neil Adams or um, I, I, I kind of gravitated towards that style as well uh, another favorite of mine as a fan uh, was Klaus Janssen mm-hmm. and um, Klaus you know kind of was taught by Dick or you know uh, his style is very much like Dick's and um, so they were all kind of similar but learning about other people I wasn't as familiar with um, that was kind of interesting because it started opening my mind to doing things you know different ways Um, you know Bob was always trying to uh, you know I talked about what I learned in school about printing and applying those kinds of things well Bob had learned things along the way too little tricks and some things a lot of things he learned from Wally Wood you know he would show me some of these tricks for doing effects and things that other people weren't doing but you know Wally had invented and and Bob had kind of inherited and you know passed along to me and uh, the use of Zipatone was another thing that not a lot of artists were doing but it was something Tom Palmer did and it was something Bob did and um, so I kind of grew to learn to use that in my work, and um, so it was it was opening me to a lot of different things that I hadn't been exposed to on my own in terms of the art. But the other thing that was probably the most profound was for me was it, it was like opening the curtain, you know, in the Wizard of Oz. It was like seeing the man behind the curtain. Once that happened, it really did kind of dampen my fan side I I wasn't collecting comics as much um, I was still reading the things I really liked but I wasn't just buying a lot of stuff to check it out hmm. um, I, I was looking at the comics in a different way I was looking at them more you know with a critical eye as an artist rather than as a fan just absorbing new material and and um, I became a lot pickier I suppose in, into what I did pick up buy but um, also seeing how it was made um, in, a, in an odd kind of a way took away some of the magic hmm. you know uh, picking up the comics and seeing them um, and just you know, I can't wait to the next one you know and it just you know loving that experience of you know just sitting down by myself in my room and being able to you know spend 20 minutes by myself reading a really good story and then just spending another 15 or 20 minutes just going through it and you know studying the artwork and and it it no longer had that same kind of magic for me and and it doesn't to this day um you know it's very much a business it's very much you know i mean i still love what i do and there are certain things right now i'm working on a commission with ron friends that um you know it's the kind of thing you always say boy they pay me to do this because i would do this for free i'm having that much fun with it um but in general you don't really get work like that too often it's like well you gotta take the work that comes along and some of it's a lot of fun uh and you enjoy doing it but for the most part it's a lot of work Hmm. and um and uh it it i don't know i don't know how to explain it but i know that that as soon as i started working in the industry and seeing how it all came together that kind of uh it really affected you know my perspective as a fan it makes sense because your relationship your relationship to it does change i will say the cool part about it though was the the you know learning that everybody lives everywhere and you know everybody is just 
you know, they're like me. They're like a guy living in their home somewhere that just comes into the city, drops off their pages. It's it's such a casual thing. Nobody's gone to art school, or I shouldn't say that, but it it wasn't a requirement. And, and you know, nobody's dressing up in three-piece suits to go in and, you know, work at Marvel Comics. It was very casual. And the irony to that was the first time I went in, probably eight months into working for Bob, I went into New York with him for the first time, and I was wearing a three-piece corduroy suit, you know, thinking, <laughs> well, I'm going up to Marvel Comics in New York City, that's real business, you know, I got to dress the part, and I go in, and there's all these guys in blue jeans, and, you know, shirts, and it's real casual, and nobody's dressed up, you know, there's a couple of people that, you know, have a tie on, I mean, I remember Jim Shooter, you know, was dressed much more professionally, but still kind of a casual business, you know, um, and uh, and that was an eye-opener, it was like, wow, you know, this and it's not what you're taught in high school either. Every you know, every business is the same, at least in that era. Mm. You know, you, you've got to know how to do your resume, and you've got to have you know all your credentials, and you've got to you know answer the questions the right way, and comport yourself in a certain fashion, and dress the part, and all this kind of stuff. And comics was none of that. And uh, but the the other side of that was the people meeting the people that you it's only known the names up to that point uh it's it's kind of a starstruck kind of quality at first i mean meeting bob and dave was was that the very first time um but then you know these people become very real genuine people and that once that star thing goes away and you start just seeing them as you know uh just other guys working in comics uh, you start seeing them as your peers. It's it's really cool to think that wow, I just met George Perez, or you know, I just talked to Mark Grunewald, or you know, all these people whose work that I had become familiar with, um, and and even more so over the years to look back at the people that I've become friends with. Hmm. You know, uh, Joe Sinnott was somebody as far back as I can remember. I was a fan of his work and continue to be, and I'm friends with Joe now. I go up and visit him from time to time and, you know, hang out in his house. And, and uh, I did some work for him when I was working for Bob, doing some backgrounds. It's the first time that I met him. But uh, just as recently as two years ago, I, I drove up and spent a weekend, you know, hanging out with him and uh, visiting. And that has been like one of the really cool aspects uh, of the comics is getting to meet the people uh, I guess it's like if you break, you know, people always, oh, I want to meet, uh, you know, movie stars or whatever. And then when you meet them and they're just real people and you get through all that, you know, glamour and magic and that misperception that they're somehow different or whatever. And they just become buddies or they, they become peers. Uh, it, it, it's kind of a cool thing, you mm-hmm. know, especially if they're really cool people. For sure. The worst thing is when you meet some of these people and they turn out not to be so cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, he was a hero, and it's like, what was I thinking? You know? <laughs> well, I mean, in a very different way, but I mean, even for me as a as a podcaster, like, I, it's it's a fun thing I do. It's not my main job. My main job is I work at a bank, and that's fun too. But <laughs> in its own way, but you know, then I get to do this podcast, and I get to interview people whose work I've loved for years, and that's very cool. That now I get to actually talk to people like yourself and find out about you know what kind of went into the process and what 
yeah, these you know these great pieces of work I've seen or whatever it might be, being able to kind of understand and actually talk and pick brains of the people whose work I've loved for years is a very cool process for me. I mean, I've been interviewing people for I guess four or five years now, and it's still exciting to me every time because I just it's you know getting to be part of that world in some way that I've loved for so long. Yeah, no, I get that. It, it's uh, I I always say the reason I wanted to get into comics was uh, I attribute it to my love of that Avengers run John Buscema and, mm. and Tom Palmer I just recently within the last couple of years met Tom Palmer for the first time on the telephone had my first conversations with him I had a reason to call him and ended up having a wonderful conversation led to a couple of other conversations just about work and, and you know just regular stuff and uh, and boy he was such a delight to talk to but years and years ago I had a reason I was working on something I was trying to develop with David Michelinie a miniseries of Marvel and I wanted to see if I could get John Buscema to pencil it and Jim Shooter gave me his phone number and says give him a call and ask him if he'll do it oh wow and um, I had met him once at a comic book convention and before I broke it into comics and um was when Conan 99 came out because I remember uh, it was a week before 100 came out and I had wanted to was hoping it would be out so I could get him to sign it and I remember approaching him uh, it was a creation con in Philadelphia and it was the first time I had been to any kind of a real big convention and I didn't know how they worked I didn't know you know there was an area where the artists were that you could go up and you know at their table and I just saw him standing there and I guess he was taking a break but I approached him to sign it and he seemed a little gruff and probably because I was interrupting his break time but um, I was very intimidated and I had heard he was a little bit of a curmudgeon from some people and and um, you know I, I don't didn't know if that were true or but it certainly you know worked on my intimidation that I already built up in my brain so when I called him I was delighted to find out he was one of the sweetest nicest people I've ever spoken to uh, for somebody that talented somebody who I revered that much uh, admired his work to find out that he was just a very nice gentleman um, he did not have the time to take the project but uh, there was nothing curmudgeonly or grumpy or <laughs> gruff about the conversation whatsoever uh, I didn't feel like I bothered him um, you know, he seemed to be genuinely, you know, uh, uh, touched by the idea that I would want to ask him to, to do this project of mine. But um, it, it was it was great. It was one of those instances where you meet your heroes and, you know, they they don't fail you, you know. Um, and that's been more of my experience than not is a lot of the people that I've met and encountered uh, in comics really turn out to be a wonderful bunch of people. And I've made a lot of wonderful friends in this uh, out of some of these people that I revered before I ever got into comics. Um, it's, it's really kind of a cool thing. It's one of the best parts of the whole job. When you called uh, John, was that would that would you, would you have said that was the most kind of starstruck you were in terms of someone you got to actually talk to who was someone you revered, or was there another instance that was kind of higher up on the totem pole there? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether I would define it as starstruck in the same way you might be if you wanted to meet, uh, you know, some you know Harrison Ford or some movie star or something like that. 
Um, I'm not really sure. I think it's. I think some of the intimidation just comes from the being rejected, and and I had dealt with rejection, you know, in school, and I didn't get a lot of support from family. They wanted me to do comics, and you know, so I was used to people always turning me away, and you know, not necessarily being kind about it, you know. Um, so it, 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 I guess my intimidation was, you know, I'm going to get on this this phone and this guy whose work I love is going to tear me a new one for calling him and you know and you know is this a mistake why isn't the editor the one asking him to do the work you know that kind of thing <laughs> and um, we didn't have an official editor at the time Jim Shooter was had you know given us a go ahead to, to do this project to, to do the plots and and start putting it together which is why you know he knew it was a personal project and I think he was trying to help me and encourage me to do that kind of work um, he was always giving me opportunities, you know, he gave me a box of colors years ago because I wanted to color and, and I, you know, I credit that with the, where I started, you know, uh, doing my comics coloring, you know, the first opportunity I had there. And, and this story was kind of an opportunity to give me a chance to create something and work on stories with Dave Michelini and, um, and so, yeah, I was, I was very intimidated because I just didn't want him to say no and, and make me feel, you know, make me regret it and, and feel like it was a big mistake. And, but I, I don't know if I would identify that quite so much as being starstruck in the same, in the same way that, you know, most people would identify that. Um, sometimes it's just hard to meet people that, you know, that you admire, you know, I mean, uh, you know, or, or, or especially when you're, you know, now it's a little different. I, I hate to say it. I've been in the business, you know, as long now as some of these guys were then. And, you know, I, I have enough of a reputation that in most cases, if I, you know, call and talk to somebody, I'm not, you know, I can't think of anybody who would really intimidate me. Um, years ago, I called Stan Lee up out of nowhere uh, to, to just ask him a favor, actually. <laughs> and um, I had met him once, uh, shared a, a limo with him to a book signing, and had just a little bit of a conversation with him the, the time I spent around him. But, you know, when I called him up, I was just like, I, am I even going to be able to get through to him? And it was an amazing experience because the guy answered the phone, and, you know, as so many people will do, they answer the phone and they'll say, well, may I say who's calling? And then they tell you, well, he's, you know, in uh, Borneo right now, and he can't take your call, you know, and you, you know that they just, you're not important enough to get through, you know. And um, so this guy put me on hold, and uh, I thought, well, I guess this isn't going anywhere. And a minute later, Stan answers the phone, Brad, how are you? How have you been? Like he's known me all his life. <laughs> and it was just amazing. And I was calling because I have twin children who I had taken out of school to go see Spider-Man. And they, you know, saw they were familiar with who Spider-Man was and and Stan Lee, you know, of course, Stan's big in the Marvel movies and stuff. And my wife made some comment about, well, you know, your dad knows Stan Lee. He worked for him when he was at Marvel. And, uh, oh, really, if you met Stan? And I said, well, I've been, you know. And I, it wasn't a big deal, but to my kids, it was like, wow, you know, that was something to them. 
and their birthday was coming up, and I called to ask him if I could get him to sign something for them for the, for their birthday. And he gave me his personal address and the, the, you know his email and to send his their names and everything. And like a week later, I got two uh, photographs of him facing old photographs of him facing off Spider Man, and he had drawn hand drawn in uh, lettered word balloons of him speaking to Spider Man about my kids it being their birthday and stuff <laughs> personalized to them. And it was just like the most amazing. That was probably as close. The starstruck as I've ever been because you don't get much bigger in comics than Stanley. No, um, that's a good story. Yeah, wow. but I also get teased by some people because years ago I was in Atlanta and Jack Kirby was there and it's like, don't you want to meet Jack Kirby? And I was like, not really. I it was never really a, a fan of. I, I appreciate his work much more now than I did thirty years ago. Um, but I just I wasn't interested, you know. And other people were just knocking each other over to get to see Stan, uh, to get to see uh, Jack, and Jack and Stan together actually at the same convention. And I just I wasn't interested. So, do you ever regret that? Uh, no, no, I don't. I you know I I I've been doing this. It'll be forty years in September since I started working for Bob. Wow. And um, in that time, I. I think it's safe to say that I've met everybody in comics that I ever would have wanted to. Um, I Sal Buscema was another artist who I loved his work when I was a kid, and I recently met him a few years ago. He was getting an award in Baltimore. He's I'm very good friends with Ron Friends, and Ron is very close with Sal. They do a lot of work together, and he was going to this thing. And I wanted to go down and meet him. And uh, and while I was there, he invited me to go to lunch with them. And, of course, then I got to sit at his table for the awards ceremony. And I got to talk to him a little bit and uh, talk to him back in the green room and stuff about inking and, and, and on a professional, on a peer level, you know, not as a fan. And, uh, and I think he liked that because he's used to – you know, a lot of the questions he gets from people and, and the admiration. And, and I go through this, too. I've had people uh, that I've met who end up have even done work for me as assistants over the years and stuff. But I've, I've had people that when they meet me um, and I become friendly with them, they still treat me like, you know, like a celebrity, like sir, or, you know. And, and please, you know, we're just, we're buddies. I, I don't, I, I'm not somebody who likes the spotlight. I don't want this this feeling of being treated special, you know, just because I do comics. And it, it's it's a very awkward feeling. And that was kind of what I, I found with Sal is that, you know, a lot of places he goes, people are always treating him like he's Sal Buscema, the legend. And we were just talking shop and, and had a lot of things, family uh, kind of things, you know, uh, in common, um, and uh, had a few things, you know, we talked about, and I've talked to him on the phone a few times now, and and it's like, you know, I guess I could consider him a friend at this point, uh, certainly a good acquaintance, and um, uh, he takes my calls when I call if he's available, and that's a really cool thing, you know. It's just wow, I I love Salby Sema's work when I was a kid, and now I can just call him up and say, hey, Sal. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think that I've met everybody 
that I ever would have wanted to. Uh, my biggest regret is I, as much of a fan as I was of John Byrne's work, I never got to work. He's, he's, he's the one person I always wanted to work on uh, in the early part of my career that I never managed to seem to get a job over. Um, you know, I, I, when I started at DC, I very much wanted to work on George Perez too. And I ended up working on him several times over the years. Um, you know, John Buscema, I butchered a couple of Conans of his and, and ended up doing one piece that I was really happy with years later when I became a better artist. But, um, you know, John's the one, the one person that's eluded me. Interesting. Now, speaking of, uh, we've we've kind of gone around in a few circles, but I had a question. So, how do you do the transition away from working for Bob and actually breaking in on your own? And how did that kind of come about? And I guess at that point, you were pretty entrenched at at doing inks. Like, were you ever thinking in your head, "I just want to do pencils. I want to go back to doing pencils"? Or by that point, were you like, "No, inks are where it's at." Well, that's interesting because yeah, I think when you're a kid and you're drawing, you know, you're. I didn't really know what inking was as a discipline or, you know, as a separate thing. As, as many people who come to conventions now, you know, a lot of the fans don't really understand what the difference is. Um, I'm not sure many of the people working in comics and the editors know what the difference is, quite frankly. But uh, um, so you're, you're always drawing and, and, you know, when you're finishing with Mark or whatever, that's just part of finishing the drawing. So when I met Bob, that in and of itself was an education. He's an anchor. It's, oh, okay, so that's something completely different. And it was easier to break in as an anchor because you've already, you know, the penciler has it really tough. He's working with a blank piece of paper. And, you know, he's got to tell the story, but he's got to be able to draw as well. So he's got to be able to draw what he wants, you know, wants to, to show you in his storytelling. Um, the anchor has to approach everything a little differently. You know, we're uh, dealing more with shape and shadow and perspective and, you know, and uh, truing up what's there and keeping what's there, hopefully maintaining what the penciler gives us. And... Um, when I was working for Bob, uh, it, it became clear that I enjoyed inking. You know, I, I enjoyed the fact that you know I had that production background in high school, working in printing and you know doing things. And that the inker, in my mind, I developed the idea that the the inker really is he's unique in the chain because he's part of the creative side of creating a comic book but he's also part of the production side hmm. uh, more so in the old days I think the colorist has become uh, in, in many ways more important than the inker these days um, but in those days you know it's your job to get that comic book art ready to be printed um, you have to make sure that you know the the work is solid, that the blacks are rich and dark, and, you know, all the lines are going to hold up, and, and they're not going to break up, they're not too thin or whatever, you know, uh, clean everything up, make sure it's ready to go to production and be printed, and at the same time, you're also working on getting it from the penciler and trying to keep what he put in there, not lose his drawing, trying to enhance it, 
and and add to the storytelling. You know, if you're getting breakdowns, which is what I ended up doing most of my career, was doing finishing inks because I had ability to draw. I, I studied, uh, you know, wanting to learn to draw, not to just follow, you know, what people put down. And um, so I got to do a lot of jobs where I was finishing the work, which meant that I had to you know, fix up anatomy and add shadow and texture and fix perspective and basically finish the work. And that to me, the fact that what I did was what actually ends up in the comic book, that the amount of control, um, I, I just enjoyed that. I, I was just recently talking to Ron Friends about this just the other day, that as a penciler, I don't know how they do it because they don't always know who they're going to get to ink it and they may spend tons of time working out a problem trying to figure out how to tell the story a certain way getting the drawing just where they want it and then somebody will come along and say oh well I think it should be this (laughs) and somebody who may not be as good an artist but because they're the last person the final say they get to change it and make it what they want and then all of your effort is kind of, you know, washed away. And I realized early on that would be really frustrating. You know, if you couldn't do all the work yourself, if you had to rely on drawing something and then letting someone else, you know, take it over and turn it into something else, that would be kind of a hard pill to swallow if it didn't come out the way you wanted it to. So being the anchor was kind of, you know, uh, enjoyable at that point that well at least now I knew what it was going to look like when it was done and I also had the mentality that the pencilers fortunately I got to work with a lot of great pencilers whose work I loved anyway but I, I've always had the mentality that the most important part of my job is to service the pencilers work you know I don't want to lose what he put there I, you know, I want to add to it hopefully you'll you know come across a style that is a blend of both pieces so that the penciler feels like he's still coming through but yet you also feel like you're represented and it's this nice hybrid of two different artists where you have the best of both um you know i never was somebody who felt like i you know oh this is the way i think it should be and i'm gonna do it my way and you know take whatever the penciler gave me and move it to that. And there are some people that that's what they believe. They believe that the penciler is basically just putting down lines for them, you know, like a structure for them to do what they want. Hmm. And um, that's never how I've looked at it. Uh, Not to say that I haven't failed plenty of times. Um, There's one particular truck driver face out there, Ron Friends, you'll know what I'm talking about, (laughs) you know, where I I went uh, too far in one direction with something because I I didn't like, you know, what was going on in the pencils, wanted to try to make it something else and instead made it far worse uh, than I should have. So, yeah, there are times where you fail miserably at that kind of stuff. But, you know, hopefully you are able to, you know, keep what the penciler put in and bring something else to it and, and basically end up with a final product that's the you know, the best of you know the sum of all parts mm-hmm. you know the best of everything from each artist 
No, at the, at the, I guess at the beginning of your career, when you are kind of jumping around and doing a lot of kind of issues here, issue there, um, is it kind of like learning kind of that process because you're go, you're do, dealing with so many different pencilers and and doing it all relatively quickly, and you're not kind of on a regular book where you can have a regular collaboration? Are you just kind of figuring out how to adapt to all these different pencilers at the same time as they come around? Yeah, well, you're trying to learn how to draw and understand the drawing. I did, and you know, Joe Rubenstein was uh, uh, met me at some point up at Marvel and took an interest in my work. And he's such a fantastic artist. Um, you know, if you've never seen this guy's paintings, I suggest you go check it out. He's just he's wonderful. But of course, he was a great inker, and it was very clear uh, that he understood drawing. He understood how the anatomy worked, and and he. Why he did, I don't know. I'm so glad that he did because he really encouraged me to, you know, pull out the anatomy books and he would sit and explain things to me and, and I would get an understanding that I wouldn't necessarily get from just trying to do the work myself or even just looking in an anatomy book. Um, and, and it was almost like little art lessons, you know, and uh, that really encouraged uh, me and, and instilled an interest on my part to become better at drawing, that I, I wanted to understand the drawing. I did not just want to follow the lines and rely that the penciler, uh, you know, was, what he was going to put down was going to be right, especially since I was doing breakdowns. Because even if the penciler is a better artist than I am, if he's working very quickly and his job is to basically do a breakdown job and get the structure down, he's not necessarily going to take the time to make sure everything's exactly, you know, right. You know, the anatomy may be a little wonky. It may be sketchy, you know, whatever. Um, that's my job is to take his uh, looser drawings and make them finished. And it's my belief that whether you get a full pencil job or you get a breakdown job, the job should look the same when it's done from the anchor. The only difference is who put what in. If it's a full pencil job, then the inker should be able to take what that penciler gave that inker and produce a job, you know, uh, a competent job that, you know, looks finished and complete the way the penciler intended it. If the penciler gives you a breakdown job, then the inker is the one who has to fill in all those things that weren't put in by the penciler, all the shadow, all the detail, all the drawing, but you should still end up at the same final point. Um, I may be the only one in the industry that feels that way, but it's kind of the way I approach it is that the job should look a certain way when it's done. And depending on what the penciler gives me will determine how much of that final look I am responsible to get there. Uh, when I, uh, you asked me a while ago, we have been going in circles, but you asked me a, a while ago about Bob and how I moved on from Bob. As I recall, that was the question. Um, after working for Bob, I, I started getting work at, up at Marvel from editors. Uh, Louis Simonson and Al Milgram were editors at Marvel. And they started hiring me to do backgrounds on their books, helping out their artists. That was how I first got backgrounds uh, over Joe Sinnott work. And then, of course, Joe hired me directly after I did some things for him. And Al started hiring me for things he was inking. But he would also hire me for projects that, you know, books that he was editing that 
the anchor on those books needed help. And so that got me in at Marvel a little bit more because I was working directly for them and, and for their editorial staff. And um, Al was great to work for because, you know, he was always very encouraging and uh, very thoughtful. My, my very first credit in comic books was unexpected. It's Spy- Amazing Spider-Man 208. Um, it is uh, an issue that was penciled by J.R., John Romita Jr., and inked by Al Milgram. And I think Al hired me to do it because I had so much experience doing backgrounds on John Romita Jr. on Iron Man for Bob uh. that he knew I could handle his breakdowns and his backgrounds. And the very first page was a very detailed uh, drawing of the Brooklyn Bridge. There's a lot of work in it. And um, and he was very happy with the way it came out. And I did not know till I picked the book up on the stands that he had given me a co-credit as Inker's, you know, Al Milgram and Brett Breeding. So it's the first time my name ever appeared in a comic book uh, as a credit. And even though I had only done backgrounds, it was on The Amazing Spider-Man. It was like, <laughs> how cool is that? You know, the first time my name shows up, it's on a book people have actually heard of, you know. So that's how I got, you know, away from Bob a little bit there. And then Bob finally encouraged me. Marvel wasn't giving me work. Marvel was not big on hiring new people. They almost encouraged new people to go to D.C. D.C. was like a proving ground in that day. And D.C. knew it. I mean, it was kind of an industry known thing. You know, it's like people will start at D.C. And then once they get good enough, Marvel hires them away. But you go there to learn and then you go to Marvel. And um, and I had grown up always wanting to be a Marvel artist, not just a comic book artist. So I had always grown up with the intention of working at Marvel. So when Bob was like, well, you got to go to D.C. And I was like, I want to work for Marvel. Now you got to go to D.C. So I went up to D.C. And uh, scheduled an appointment, went up on my own for the first time, and I had an appointment with Len Wein. And Len sent me home with a one-page Weird War Tales over Trevor Von Eden. And I came back a couple days later with that finished, and he gave me a regular series uh, Green Arrow over Trevor Von Eden. And then there was another series, oh, I don't even remember what some of these things were, but they were, I, I did some monster things, uh... I did some, you know, these backup stories of Green Lantern and Johnny something or other. Boy, I can't remember. Um, I did a lot of that stuff for a while. And then uh, my work got noticed by, um, oh, the Superman editor, boy, Julie Schwartz. And he started hiring me to work on Kurt Schaffenberger on, like, Superman family stories or whatever. And that stuff was a little cartoony, but, boy, what a wonderful draftsman he was. And at some point after close to a year of doing that kind of stuff, you know, I was like, oh, God, is there any chance I could do some George Perez? He was doing, you know, Justice League, and they had just given the book to John Beatty. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll wait. And John, I guess, was leaving, and they were like, oh, we're going to give you... Justice League. I said, great. And then when I started on it, oh, George took some time off. Uh, it was three issues of Don Heck. I was like, oh, I remember Don Heck from the Avengers. Oh, okay. It's kind of old school stuff, but oh, what a wonderful draftsman he was. I had a lot of fun with that stuff. And then George did issue 200, and some point along 200, it was like, well, that's going to be his last issue. <laughs> <laughs> and shortly after that, you know, Marvel came knocking, and um, 
you know, and then I went over to Marvel, and that was kind of the start of me being completely on my own. I think at the time I started working for Marvel and left DC is about the time I stopped doing backgrounds altogether. Wow. Now, when, when, now you mentioned before your friendship with Ron and Friends. When did you guys first kind of, kind of collaborate, or when did you guys kind of strike up that friendship? Well, when, when um, Jim Owsley became editor of the Spider-Man titles, he put together a uh, Spider-Man Summit, I guess, very similar to what we did on Superman years later, but it was a one-time thing where he brought all the people in he had hired. He hired me to ink Rich Buckler, over um, Spectacular Spider-Man that was being written by Peter David and uh, Ron and Tom were still on Amazing I think with Joe Rubenstein inking that book and David Michelini was hired to do Web of Spider-Man and I think Mark Silvestri was the artist on that and I forget who was inking him and I think there were only the three titles at the time if I'm yeah, correct that's right and um, so we we all had this you know three day meeting in New York, uh, conference rooms and going out to dinner and lunch and whatever. And that's where I met Ron and we kind of hit it off and, um, you know, just, uh, talking and, you know, I was a fan of his work, although I wasn't familiar with much of his work, any of his work, quite frankly, other than Spider-Man, but I was enjoying what he had been doing on Spider-Man. Um, but I had a, a great time talking to him and, uh, we started just talking on the phone and at some point, you know, I, I can't remember whether I went up there for a visit or whatever, but, you know, we had become good friends. We started to realize that, you know, we had a lot in common and, you know, we were like, it was funny at one point we were like brothers separated at birth, you know, it was like, <laughs> wow, we just, we really just hit it off. And, uh, you know, I, I could very easily say it's probably the single best thing that's ever happened to me in my career was becoming friends with Ron because he really just has been that important a part of my career and my life. He's just a terrific friend and a wonderful artist and uh, I talk to him every week if not every day and uh, we are working on projects you know off and on all the time now and his work is something that just comes natural to me to work on. I think it's because we have the same influences. Um, it, it, I think we mesh well together because of that. And um, it just, it's, it's, yeah, it's a great collaboration. So, Whenever Ron puts up uh, pages of the commissions he's done that you think they always look gorgeous. <laughs> oh, his, he's amazing. He is just, uh, I have, been to many conventions with him and he will sit there and I'm very slow at commissions uh, it takes me a while to get the structure once I get a structure that works you know I can draw it you know I can do the drawing and tighten it up and know what I want to do with it but it's getting that proportion and getting it to fit on the paper the right way and coming up with an idea or whatever and it, it's a joke because when we have gone to conventions together I'll do like three take three for the day and sometimes I have to take them back to my room to finish them at night and he sat there and done 15 or 16 in the same amount of time and every single one of them is 10 times better than my best one so um, he just uh, is amazing and um, and I've learned so much from working with him because he's a he's a great designer he's a great storyteller uh, he worked with me on some uh, books that we did children's books uh, they started out as 
interactive iPad apps for uh, Warner Brothers consumer mm-hmm. products or Warner Warner Brothers Global Publishing actually. Uh, a few years back, back in 2012, we did four Superman that were supposed to be animated iPad apps. They didn't. They had problems getting them produced, and they eventually just became digital comics. And we ended up doing eight of those and four Batman ones. And I remember some of the storytelling things. You know, like the writer would ask for you know uh, certain things to happen in the panels, and it would be like something's happening in front of him, behind him, above, and he's like this is something you normally would have a page of panels to to do and he had one panel to do it and he would rack his brain and then he would come up with something that was like it was all there <laughs> you know it's he he just it, it doesn't always come easy to him but i just think he's brilliant as a storyteller i think he's one of the best in the business actually I had a listener question come in that was uh to ask you if you have any funny run friend stories that you can share well, that's the kicker now, isn't it, Ken, that I can share? Yes. <laughs> um, wow, I would have to rack my brain. I know that I do, but yeah, whether I could share some of the ones or not, I don't know. Uh, that's fair. Yeah, I you know I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to spontaneously say something and then realize, oops, I should have said that out loud. Now you've worked. But, uh, nothing too embarrassing you know we've had a lot of fun together we've traveled together a lot um we spent time around each other and each other's families and uh, a lot a lot of hours on the phone uh, over the years and um we had a lot of fun for sure now so i i haven't asked about superman we're already an hour in and i have to let you go at some point um so i have to ask about you know you did a lot of amazing work on superman i i mean it's probably one of the things that you must be most remembered for you've i mean you've worked on a lot of amazing projects in terms of uh the kind of the impact like you worked on the first west coast avengers book uh, that kind of launched that team that for me is a pretty big deal uh obviously you worked on the death of superman you've worked on a lot of these other projects um i'm a big fan of a next and you worked on that as well uh, so oh, that, I love that series. So that's that's always a special place for me because I was reading that was when I was younger, and it's always yeah, it's a, it's a very special book to me. So of all those things, I'm only going to be able to have time to ask you about a couple of them. Uh, but just working on Superman, obviously you were part of the death of Superman, which is one of the most reprinted Superman stories of all time. What was it uh, like working with Dan? Because I always kind of when I see Dan's Superman, I always think of you. And your ex. Yeah, it's funny that, uh, you know, I mean, all these years later, it's hard to believe it's been 25 years since we did that. Mm. Um, I actually started on Superman about a year or so before Dan came on board. And then I was working with Cary Gamble and Bob McLeod and George Perez, you know, before I started working for Dan. So it wasn't like we were immediately paired with one another. Um, and at some point, it became it was Mike's idea to pair us he, he was moving people around and I I was like he and he was doing it right on the issue where Lois reveals herself or, or Superman Clark reveals himself to Lois Lane and I was like really Mike you're taking that issue away from me that's gonna be a big deal and he's like oh no you know we've already had our big moments and don't worry about it it's not gonna be that big of a deal and I I really need you over here and I wanna you know I'm shuffling things I'm trying to reorganize things and I you know I've done a couple of things fill-ins on Dan early on and uh, he liked what he you know we had done and and so I said okay sure and uh, you know I mean as it turned out it positioned me to be you know with Dan on the death of Superman and so that was definitely much bigger of a deal but um, 
but yeah, I had no idea that uh, I'm always surprised that when people come up and they're saying, oh, you know, we love what you did on Dan. And um, when we first started working together, I absolutely loved it. I, uh, Dan's uh, pencils were uh, more open and um, some of the stories were a lot of fun. I remember the one we did when we were doing the dinosaurs and um, it just, yeah, we had, it, it, I guess we meshed well together, but I always liked what Art Tiber did on it. And I wasn't, uh, Dan's a little stylized in his finish work, not his structure, but once, you know, some pencilers, I think the hardest thing that they have going for them is they you know if they know how to draw then it's once they have to add that rendering layer they're not quite sure they don't have like a distinct style or have that figured out it's it's something that's separate Hmm. you know the structure is separate from the veneer that they put on it so there are some pencilers that can do really nice structural drawings but then when they come to have to do a full pencil drawing all of a sudden it becomes a little more disjointed or it's you know it's not as cohesive and i think to some degree um that is dan dan some of his work when he would get tight would be like okay well that arm looked great but it doesn't connect that you know once you put the detail in or something but i i really liked you know the uh simplicity of the work that we were doing and or that he was doing and the way Art Bear had captured it, but that wasn't the way I inked. That wasn't kind of my wheelhouse, and mm-hmm. I, I didn't know how to quite get there. And, and Mike Carlin was like, just do your thing. That's what I hired you for. So it took me a little bit of time to wrap my brain around doing my thing over Dan because I saw the, you know, his pencils as working so well with uh, a style more like art to bear but um you know over time doing so much work together we kind of developed our own thing i suppose together and uh, and dan's penciling you know changed and it was tighter and he was putting more rendering in and and in some ways it even looked like maybe he was leaning more in his finished drawings to the way i was going to ink it i don't know you know it just became easier somehow it became more natural to do it as time went on when the death of superman happened i think that we were all so busy i know i was rushing through stuff i was doing such a volume of stuff at one point because i was also being pulled off of stuff or not pulled off of it but pulled aside to do a lot of the licensing uh and in-house ads and stuff i remember one month i did more pages of uh art for licensing marketing and ads than i did in the actual issue that month um (laughs) it was a lot and um you know i i feel like the the work just kind of i don't know it just didn't uh it 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 felt like it was all being done quicker it it wasn't done with as much care Mm. and uh and that that kind of reversed itself you know when we when we did that uh superman uh hunter prey i think we were both on our good game at that point um but there was there was a point there like funeral for a friend or whatever a couple of issues where i really feel like i i just didn't uh you know it didn't wasn't firing on all cylinders let's put it that way Hmm, interesting because i'm thinking like because i would not have agreed with you because i really love that issue so yeah, I mean, it's, you know, everybody's perception because, you, 
you're always as an inker, at least for me, I'm always looking and seeing, you know, the page in front of me as to what's there and how I want it to be when it's done. Mm. And when that falls short, what I see is, oh, I didn't get a chance to, you know, put all that detail on that motorcycle or, oh, man, I didn't put all the reflection in the windows or I, you know, I, I, I cut back on some of the details here or I didn't put as many leaves on the trees or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever it is, there's something in your mind that, you know, it's incomplete or you cut corners or you see it, you know what they are, but nobody else would know because the only part, you know, I've only seen it in my mind the way I wanted to see it finished. And, uh, and I didn't get there. And I know specifically with those issues, uh, one in particular, because we were also traveling to Miami for a thing for D.C. with, with the hurricane victims down there. And um, so I was taking time to do that. And it was like so much time was going to other things. And Mike was like, no, 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 I'll, you know, I'll give you a little bit more time to get the work done. But I was using assistance and, as I said, cutting corners and stuff. And I, I think a lot of the guys were doing that to some degree. And some of them clearly handled it better than I did. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, when people say, oh, well, you know, like yourself, I don't see that, uh, it's good. But, you know, I still can't help but feel that uh, um, it's not my best work in some cases. Hmm. In, in I was the, very happy with the Hunter Prey work that we did. And, of course, the death of Superman, I was really happy with the way that that came out. So, I mean, this may sound like a stupid question, but when you guys were working on Death of Superman, did you have any idea that it would have any anywhere near the impact that it would eventually have? No. Uh, I mean, that's... You know, it's funny. It's been the 25th anniversary, so I've been going to a lot of conventions and been on panels with these guys, and it's and this has been the topic of conversation and and reviewing, you know, what happened and how we remember it, and you know, what we're remembering the same after all these years, and where some of the the holes in our memory are, and whatever. And the one thing I think we all agree on is, yeah, we we didn't see this coming at all. Uh, I know from day one when the book came out, I was fielding questions by you know local Philadelphia news affiliates at a, a it's a big mall in Philadelphia, one of the biggest on the East Coast, I think, the Franklin Mills Mall, and and I had a friend that owned a comic shop right there at the food court, and the food court was shoulder to shoulder with people just wanting books and signings, and all four networks were there doing coverage, and one guy in particular was like, oh, come on, you know, you can tell me, he's coming back, I know Paul Levitz, this is all just some gimmick to boost sales, and, you know, blah, 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 and I said, that's no gimmick, it's, it's, it's no, you know, we did not know DC would let us do this, uh, and we did not plan for this, this came out of necessity in that we had originally planned to do the wedding and when the TV show Lois and Clark came about uh, it, the decision was made by someone that we should hold off doing the wedding to maybe coincide with the wedding on the TV show in a couple of years and, and, and slow down a little bit maybe coordinate that And but we need something else to fill this, these stories and so we were all brought together in an emergency meeting in New York, you know, one of our summits. We did these at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. Uh, they would bring everybody in, inkers, pencilers, colorists, editors, uh, for three, four days. We would throw story ideas around. Mike would write them up on a chart on the, on the board and, and fill in. We would do, like, a whole year's worth of stories. And, and uh, some of them would only be brief outlines, you know, further away. But the stuff coming right up, we would tighten up and get the story down pat. And now we had to 
do like six months or more worth of stories, find something else to do. And what are we going to do? And it was, nobody had any really clear ideas. Um, eventually it became, you know, the, the idea of killing him came up. Jerry Ordway at every meeting would say, let's just kill him. And it was always a joke. Everybody laughed off. You know, it was that point where well, we got no other ideas. Let's just kill him. And Mike's response this time, instead of laughing it off, was, okay, then what? And it was like, well, you know, Dan had had this idea for wanting to do a, a character of just brute force to fight Superman. that could go toe-to-toe and actually beat Superman. And, uh, uh, you know, Jerry, I think, brought up, let's merge these stories. Why don't we, you know, put them together that this guy you know, in this fight and, and can beat Superman and actually kill Superman. And, and and it just snowballed into what became the death of Superman storyline. But we left the meeting wondering if DC would even let us do this. I mean, it's Superman, for God's sake. He's on everything, you know. Uh, are they going to let us kill him? And they did. They, they to their credit... Mike had really brought together a group of people that we had increased sales, we had driven interest in the books, and they trusted Mike to, to take the story forward and what we would do with it, and that it would be good. And they let us move forward with it, and we had no idea. We were getting little blips on the radar with, you know, Entertainment Tonight calling because, uh, you know, Superman was now, or Clark Plant was now engaged to Lois Lane. Then we got another blip when he revealed his identity to Lois. And, you know, these little things got on the radar in the news and we thought it was going to be something like that. You know, some people would notice, but quite frankly Superman wasn't selling real well at that time. It was near cancellation numbers when I started on the books. Um, it was a loss leader for DC. We were the last book be 75 cents and they would never do any kind of reprints though the trade paperbacks you know the superman doesn't sell but superman was a flagship title they weren't going to cancel it so we had uh, you know kept plodding along doing the best stories we could and and be building readership and um you know doing good stories that people really enjoyed getting critical acclaim for what we were doing and we thought we'd just get a little blip out of it and when that day came and all of us were going somewhere you know it, it encountered these huge crowds and this huge media event and the media just kept grabbing onto it you know uh, everybody in the world knows who superman was and they kind of ran with the story and again it you know it snowballed in the meeting as a story now it was snowballing as an event as it was unfolding and we were all caught off guard by it i tend to think after that, it became a little bit more of a structured thing because, you know, we were still doing the stories like, well, what can we do next? We don't want to, you know, immediately end the story. We didn't know that we were going to be bringing Clark Kent back. We knew Superman would have to come back in some capacity or another. Ultimately, that's what led to the four Superman as we tried to figure out what we were going to do. Uh, the funeral for a friend was really the probably the best part of the story. Uh, the most fun part, you know, to read, I thought, uh, to, to see how the world was affected, you know, in comics and outside of comics by the loss of Superman, what he meant to the world. But it, it was ironic in that the character wasn't really selling until we did this. <laughs> and um, 
so then it became, well, now how do we recreate it? You know, marketing would then say, well, maybe we should do, you know, a foil cover or let's, you know, it, it was like little things seeping in to try to capture that lightning in a bottle again. And um, that, that would be the one thing that would be different, as I remember it, from the, the way the original story was, is we really didn't know where we were going. But once we had done that, then, you know, those marketing machines kick in and and people do start thinking a little bit about ah but if we do this you know you know keep it popular keep it going for sure now i have a question so when you guys do bring in the cyborg superman who obviously was a very you know memorable character has been used like pretty regularly for years and is a very you know a, a good character people like to use uh, how involved were you with with Dan on kind of cementing that look or did Dan have a pretty good sense and then you just kind of embellished from that or like how involved were you in the creation visually of the Cyborg Superman character um, I had very little to do with it uh, that was Dan's baby you know his character from the beginning with Hank Henshaw and and the cyborg and his whole idea to bring the cyborg in I wasn't aware of that until the pages showed up um, but when the pages did show up the, on, the only thing I'd say I contributed to it and I don't know how well it carried through to other people or certainly to this day but I called Mike Carlin up and I said you know he looks a little bit like the Terminator to me and I said how about if I do the metal parts would you have a problem if I did all the metal parts of the body with kind of like a dark sheen like a dark chrome rather than silver bright you know shiny Hmm. reflecting metal and uh mike was like no that sounds cool do it and uh i was like okay and so that would be the only thing you know visually i think that i contributed to it was just you know doing a a darker sheen uh, on the character i mean he was still uh color red as i was he no he became red later. Yeah, I'm confusing him with the, the later version. Mm. But they, they did color at first the the metal parts as a darker gray to you know lend itself to the the black darker shading that I put on those parts and um, and I thought it looked cool that way. I thought and I didn't think it looked like the Terminator. So that was that was kind of what I was trying to avoid. <laughs> No, so I, I know you have to go, so I'll, I'm going to pepper you with two more questions if you if you have time. Sure. So the first is, so while you're you're doing Superman throughout the '90s, and then you come and work with Ron on one issue of Untold Tales of Spider-Man. I'm just curious. Um, first of all, how did he kind of get you over to do the inks on him? And also, what was it like to do a much younger version of Peter? Because obviously you had done some Spider-Man work before, but it was the modern version of Spider-Man. And here you're able to kind of go back to, you know, the kind of original Ditko feel of the book. Um, what was it like to, to come on and be able to ink Ron on that story? Well, it, it's kind of the uh, interesting side of this that isn't, um, I don't know that I've ever talked about it in, in interviews or whatever, but I got hurt um, back in the 90s right after uh, the, finishing the Hunter Prey work. I turned in Hunter Prey in May and was coming back to Superman, had the first issue showing up, and within a couple of weeks, um, United Parcel Service decided to put a stack of my books under a floor mat in front of my house so that when I stepped out of my house I stepped down onto the mat and the mat shifted and threw me forward 
and I banged up. I did nerve damage in my back, which I still have issues with. Oh my god! Um, I smashed my hand. Um, I smashed my foot, my knee. I got banged up pretty good. Um, I had kind of fallen on a concrete patio and skipped and went down a step onto a brick sidewalk and, and was banged up pretty well. And I started having troubles almost immediately with my motor skills. I was having trouble inking the pages that I had. I was having pain holding the pen for prolonged periods of time, the movement. Um, and I really got worried. And I was in this dilemma of, you know, do I say anything about it or you know, I really was feeling, you know, fearful of how this was going to affect me moving forward because I had always had issues from the beginning of my career with deadlines. Um, a little bit of it was being a procrastinator. A lot of it was lack of confidence or fear of, you know, starting in on the pencils and wanting to keep what was there. And, you know, uh, sometimes going in and tightening up with pencil before I'd go in with ink as I was learning it was always taking too much time. Uh, and not budgeting my time in the beginning of a job well, and then coming down to the end and having, you know, coming short on pages. So I was concerned about that. Of course, I'd been on Superman for 10 years and uh, was able, even though we had issues with that as well, was able to control it enough that I kept the assignment. Um, as soon as this happened, uh, Mike very quickly had to let me go. And I couldn't stay on the work. Uh, I couldn't stay on the book regularly. And that's how, that's the reason I ended up on Man of Tomorrow, which was a quarterly book. Hmm. And uh, that one issue, the interesting thing is, is this was all being sorted out, you know, whether I could come back or what they were going to do, how they were going to use me. Dan was leaving the pencils and I, Ron was needing work. And I suggested Ron to Mike Carlin. I says, Ron is going to be needing work. His schedule's opening up. And we had done the first two Superman annuals together. Those, those were the first Superman stories either of us had done for Mike Carlin. Um, so he was familiar with working with Ron and Ron's work. And he was like hiring him right away to work with me. But then it became official that I wasn't going to be inking the book regularly. And so Ron came on the book to work with me. And then I wasn't there any longer. Mm. And uh, But then... Because I had wanted to work with Ron, I was given half of an issue of Superman uh, to do, I think, issue 111. And I guess at some point I just needed work, and um, that Spider-Man became available, and I think Ron threw my name out there, and the editor was like, yeah, sure, we'll use him, you know, it's Ron requested me. And all I remember is that being a fun issue to do. I still remember the splash page. I love doing the lizard. Ron did a great lizard. Uh, it was tight pencils. I don't remember. They were probably Ron's usual breakdowns, which were still pretty tight. But I don't remember, you know, the feeling of like, oh, I'm working on a whole different Peter Parker or a younger Peter Parker. I just remember enjoying working on that. I remember the bat creature. I remember, you know, mm -hmm. doing Spider-Man again in the red and blue costume because I had, you know, done the black costume a lot. Because, um, you know, I did the issue with Ron uh, 252 with the first issue of him in the black costume. And then a lot of the issues I did subsequently uh, with Rich Buckler and then with Ron when I was working on Amazing were all in the black costume. So I didn't really get a lot of time on the books doing Spider-Man in his traditional costume. So that was the one thing I do remember about that issue, that it was a lot of fun doing, you know, the Spidey I grew up with. Um, 
but yeah, I, I, other than that, I did. I also did uh, an issue or a part of an issue over Pat Olaf on that mm. uh, Spider-Man book as well, and that was a lot of fun. I thought I meshed really well with uh, Pat and had a lot of fun working over his pencils. Um, and again, it was fun doing you know uh, all those characters, Peter Parker, and you know doing Spider-Man again. But um, but yeah, at that point, the work that I was doing was really finding whatever I could find uh, to just keep going. And in actuality, by uh, I, you know, I ended up uh, I ended up getting hired to do something at DC that, out through a lot of reasons, it ended up falling apart. The the second Doomsday, you know, uh, miniseries prestige format thing. Um, became kind of a contractual nightmare we had contracted for a certain deadline and they couldn't provide the pages Mm. Um, and I was sitting without work and Avengers Next came along and it was ready to go and it was like 12 weeks ahead of schedule and I thought this is perfect and uh, so I accepted it and I started doing that and that kind of burned my bridges at DC because then I wasn't able to you know, maintain the schedule they had given, even though they hadn't provided the pages as they promised on the schedule they promised. So um, I did that, and then the book slowly became behind schedule uh, through no fault of my own. But uh, by the time we got to issue three, it had gotten behind schedule enough that I wasn't able to maintain the monthly book on a three, two and a half week, three week schedule for the inking. And I ended up, you know, not being able to stay with that project. Uh, but I, boy, I love that. I, I, to this day, I think that's some of the best work uh, that I've ever done. Was I, I love the project so much. Having gotten into the business because I love the Avengers, that felt like the Avengers. It felt like a natural progression of the Avengers to me. I really enjoyed what Tom and Ron came up with for that. I love the designs Ron had done. And uh, I really miss that project. I, I wish that was still around. As a reader, I definitely agree. Again, I mean, I would have been, I think, not to date myself as being too young, but I guess I was 15 when that first came out, and that was that hit hard for me because I don't think I'd have ever read much Avengers at that point, but there's just something about that book, the way that Tom wrote it, the way that Ron was, was penciling it, and then your inks as well, especially in this, you know, you guys working on those four issues together, they're so, so good, and they tell complete stories, and there's also, now that I know a lot more about Avengers history, uh, there's a lot of great pastiches, there's, you know, the fact that you have in the third issue, you have, you know, some of the members kind of turning against her. You have, sorry, not turning against, you have uh, Submariner, just like you had fighting oh, yeah, the original. The defenders. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that, was, that was so much fun. There's a lot of you know cool shout-outs that, again, I may not have noticed at the time, but especially as I read it now, I, it's just such a fantastic book. <laughs> no, and I, I, I wish comics were like that now. I wish they would you know bring that back and uh, let them do that again. That was, you know, they keep rebooting and changing the Avengers and whatever, and it's like, here you go. Here's a roadmap for, you know, where you should be going with it, but you know, I don't understand these days where comic books are going. Um, you know, the stuff that I see and that I'm aware of doesn't interest me at all. Uh, I just kind of left scratching my head. But uh, that was one project that uh, I really regret not being able to do more on. And that was probably the, one of the very last things that I did. I did some work in the early 2000s. For I started in 2001 doing wildlife as uh, photography as a uh, is a career and and was almost completely out of comics 
Um, I did some work for uh, Future Comics, which was a small imprint from Bob Layton and David Michelini. Uh, I did an issue with Ron and an issue with Bob Hall for them. And then that was, and I did some stuff with Ron Lim, a backup series, backup stories of one of the uh, group of characters that they had. And, um, and that was the last comics work, uh, last published comics work that I did. I, after that, I did the photography until like 2000. Well, I, I did that to this day. I do it to some degree, but I did that through like 2012, but around 2005, DC licensing called me up and, um, I've been working, you know, pretty consistently for, Licensing, even though it moved over to Warner Brothers in 2010, doing style guides and what have you for them. And I'm kind of a, a regular go-to guy for some of the people there when they do the core style guides. So that's uh, about as close to, you know, I'm still working on Superman stuff regularly, but it's just not comics. So people should check out, especially uh, your work at Catskill Comics, because there's some amazing uh, work that you can actually buy of, of Brett's. Um, some amazing, like as you said, some of the style guides or some of the, the pages were kind of character designs. It's really cool stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of style guide work that's up there. Unfortunately, you know, I, I wasn't really good at holding on. I mean, I have a whole stack of artwork I've held on to that's you know, not for sale, but, um, you know, most everything else that... Uh, that I ever wanted to sell is long gone or given away or uh, so I don't have any of that left but there's still a lot of the style guide work out there and um, and I just started doing a uh, project this week uh, an independent book it'll be the first actual comic book work story work I've done since that future work back in like 2002 uh, for an independent project called Guns and Glitter which uh, Chris Wozniak is writing and Chris Batista is penciling. Um, this is the fifth issue, although I think it may be issue one of a second series. Hmm. Uh, and it's basically uh, Charlie's Angels meets The Walking Dead. <laughs> so it's it's kind of interesting. It's this uh, group of sexy babes fighting zombies. And uh, Chris's artwork is really nice. He's doing a real nice job. Um, it's fun to work on. It's a, a different style than I've worked on before. Uh, and uh, it's I've done a couple of pieces. I did one double-page cover initially, and I'm working on pages now and uh, having a lot of fun with it. So it's, it's something different uh, than I've done before. It's not superheroes, but... You know the fact that I like his pencil so much is is making it fun to work on. So we'll see where that goes. Now, how did they convince you to kind of come out of not retirement, but I mean to actually work on interior work again? Well, you know this is interesting because I it, Facebook is so much of a business tool these days. I mean, I'm doing conventions like crazy, booking them this year, and I had avoided conventions for. 15 or 20 years and uh, I guess about 2012 or so I finally took one and and I would take one or two a year and, and, and going to places I really enjoyed going and last year I did you know maybe four or five throughout the whole year I've got eight booked already this year I'm doing about one a month um, and uh, I just got a, a private message on Facebook from Chris Wozniak, you know, asking me if I had any interest in, in this book, inking, and and uh, we got to just communicating through that, 
uh, later I ended up doing the double page splashes, kind of, I think, a test for them to see how I worked over the penciler and to figure out what I wanted to do with it. And I, I really questioned it. I mean, the, you know, I've done a couple of covers for Marvel in recent years, so that actually, which I forgot about, but those are actually my last publishing credits, but they're not interior pages, they're just covers, and I did them with Ron. And, um, I, you know, there's this part of me that misses that, you know? It's like, well, I don't... I work in comics, but I don't do the comics anymore, you know, and and some, you know, I think this is maybe a case of be careful what you wish for, because rates have just gone down. Even though these these guys pay really well, from what I understand, you know, for the business these days. But Marvel, I was talking to Marvel after doing the first cover about doing work for them again. And when they quoted me my rate, I was like, that's the rate I was making for you guys in 1988. You know, how does anybody live off of that? I, you know, I can't live off of that. That's not a living wage. And, and they just had no flexibility. And I, I could not believe that the industry had changed that poorly, you know, to have gone backwards that way. Uh, so that was a question. But again, these guys are paying better than most people. And uh, the people I know that have worked were like, oh, they're very reliable. And it's, you know, it's a good project and there's a lot of good word of mouth from these people so I thought okay well if I'm going to do anything this might be you know something to do and I enjoyed the pencils when I saw the pencils I, I liked it I liked the way he was doing it and I thought well this is something different but boy it's busy work he this you know Chris is putting so much Chris Batista is putting so much work into these pages every panel it's jam packed with zombies and of course five lead characters and um you know, so they're so it's very dense material, and I, I questioned, you know, did I want to do it? And I I talked myself into it because, well, it's somebody's offering me to do published work again, you know, and uh, even though it's published digitally at first, once the series is done, I think four issues, they'll put it into an actual printed trade paperback, so it'll actually be printed, and that'll be nice to have something to hold in your hands to show people, and. Um, and I, so I kind of talked myself into it, and again, I'm like, I hope this doesn't turn into one of those cases, be careful what you wish for, because I'm like, boy, you know, from licensing, where you're just doing character poses and that kind of thing, to doing full-blown stories again, you know, do I really want to do all this and all these backgrounds and stuff? And so far, it's been fun. I like the work. Uh, if they change pencilers on me, then I might go, oh, I don't know, you know, I, I like working on this penciler stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, we'll see. We'll see how uh, how it turns out. Uh, I'm expecting it's going to be good fun. Excellent. Well, that's very exciting. We'll have to look look out for that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know at this point. You know, like I said, I just got the first pages of the first issue I'm working on, so I have no idea when this is going to actually be out and available. Um, I know the the iPad and children's books that I mentioned earlier. Um, those were all supposed to go to be printed as children's books, you know, actual printed books as well, and that never happened. Hmm. And that's very frustrating because, you know, we, we did this work and we did some, you know, wonderful stuff. If anybody's interested in seeing this, uh, most of them are available now on Amazon.com. Uh, you can bring up my name, Louise Simonson, Ron Friends, the three of us, Louise Simonson wrote all of the issues. Um, and um, 
you know, we put our heart and soul into it. I, I did the coloring as well. I mean, they were there's a lot of time involved in some of these. Some of these books took six months to produce. Oh wow! And you know, Ron would do the layouts, the story layouts, and I would do finished inks and you know, tighten stuff up, and then I would do the coloring and the, you know, the production of it. And um, and in some cases, you know, they were thirty page stories. The animated ones were thirty page stories. And I would turn in sometimes 185, 200 layers, illustrations, because I was breaking down animation, which was a lot more than I signed on for in the beginning. And then, of course, they never got produced. One got produced, and it's no longer available. Hmm. And um, it, that was very frustrating. But then the fact that they never were printed, where you could actually hand one to somebody and say, look, this is what I do. Um, the idea that it's only available digitally uh, is really kind of disappointing to me it's really a letdown for the amount of work that we put in so i think that's another thing that kind of encouraged me made me feel like i wanted to do this new project was even though it's coming out digitally initially the end goal is that these will be printed books that you can actually hand someone or you can pick up and read and flip through um and ultimately you know that's the way i think comics should be it should be something you can pick up and hold in your hand I mean, it doesn't hurt that. I mean, again, the the original experience you had getting into comics doesn't really exist anymore for most people anyway. The idea of the the spinner rack, like I remember seeing spinner racks at grocery stores, and that's how I you know got interested. Or I'd be at a corner store and I'd you know I'd see a spinner rack, and that's just not an experience that can exist for people. Like my son's five, he'll never have that same experience of just kind of randomly seeing a comic book on the you know on a shelf. Yeah, Seven Eleven was where. I found a lot of my comics where I subscribed certain things I couldn't find. And, um, yeah, it doesn't exist. And, you know, I would argue that it should because I think that the, one of the reasons that the industry's dying is there, there aren't any new readers. And, you know, having comic shops, there are a lot of places that don't have comic shops. And those that do, I keep reading every week of one that's been around for 30 years that is closing its doors. And they're not really growing the venue anywhere, you know? They're, they're not finding ways of bringing in new readers and uh, getting the stuff out there to the masses, you know? They're, they're only serving the niche market, and, uh, you know, sooner or later, it's just going to close in on itself. And it's a shame because it's a... Uh, you know, it's a great form of entertainment. Of course, when I was a kid, it was also an affordable, cheap form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had enough money I could buy the comics that I wanted from the allowance that I got. I don't know how I can't walk into a comic store now <laughs> and afford to buy anything. You know, it's like it's ridiculous the cost of these things. And of course, the cost of these things, and you know, you got to buy five or six of them to get one kind of a story. You know, where in the old days you pay 25% and you got one story in one comic. You know, it wasn't this uh, drawn out, uh, you know, storytelling that they do now where it takes 70 pages to tell a, you know, 20 page story. So, but now we're going to get into that part of the conversation, you know, where it gets kind of, you know, dark and dull and we start crabbing (laughs) about what comics has become and nobody wants to listen to that. Ain't nobody got time for that. I'll ask you one question just with regards to that and then I then I will actually for for real let you go this time. Um, which is do you as a consumer, would you be willing to give up higher quality paper for cheaper newsprint but a cheaper comic? Um, yeah, I mean I think they did that at one point before they went to the 
you know the digital coloring and everything they got the whiter cleaner paper but slightly heavier it wasn't the cover stock glossy stuff that they use now i think there's probably a middle ground but you know it's also it seems to me it's also a matter of volume if you only have 20,000 15,000 10,000 people buying a comic book it still costs a certain amount to produce a comic book hmm. you know so you've got fewer people you know supporting that cost if you find a way to grow your market so now you can get back up to the numbers again that we used to have i mean when i got on superman it was just above 70,000 copies a month and that was near cancellation numbers mm-hmm. that was you know that was their low end sales um, that, was, that wasn't good. My understanding is they would kill for 70,000 copies a month regularly on just about any title these days. You know, I mean, yes, there are titles that are selling more than that, you know, when they put out a new number one or some other gimmick that they come up with. But, you know, just to have a regular title, you know, hit the stands and know, oh, it's 70,000 a month. I mean, you know, nothing does that anymore. No. And it's because it's it's not because the the comics per se it's not because you know they're producing bad comics necessarily but it's you know comics cost four or five bucks a piece and they cost four or about five bucks a piece because the audience is almost non-existent these days you know when the audience gets down to several hundred people what's a comic book going to cost then it's simply just not going to be worth doing it but yet it doesn't seem like anybody's really trying to brainstorm how to grow the audience how to get out there and get kids reading comics again. Everybody wants Batman to be, you know, dark and Superman to be just as dark. And everybody wants to, you know, use their foul language and and have blood and guts and, you know, and everything else in a comic book and, and, you know, have characters like Deadpool that go around where kids can't read the comics. Nobody wants to do comics for kids anymore, you know? And comics were always for kids i mean it's it to me it just doesn't make sense you know that uh, that we're trying to turn this into a something that was a kid's art form that that crossed over many different age categories but now we can only make it for adults hmm. you know uh it, it doesn't make sense to me it's it's like you know I, there's no reason in the world even even as a, a brief little gimmick or whatever, that we need to see Bruce Wayne's dick in a Batman hmm. issue. Yeah. <laughs> right? That just happened. There's no reason in the world that we need to see, what was it recently with the, the book where, uh, uh, was it Lois Lane or, or you know, getting uh, beat over and over again or something? I did, that was like a news story around oh, a couple yeah, weeks yeah. Ago, big controversy. You know, why? What are these people thinking? Why did that's good storytelling? That's just being provocative. That's just, you know, being sensational. And and that's pandering to one very small market. You know, it's it, to me it's it's not unlike video games in that, you know, the you have the video games like Grand Theft Auto that we wouldn't let our kids play. And and some of their friends would be like, oh, come on, this is the coolest thing on earth. And that those are the only kind of games that those kids will play. You know, my kids grew up playing Mario Kart and Zelda and, 
you know, things like that, and uh, uh, Uncharted even, which is, you know, not necessarily a kid's game, but it's, it's you know, much more favorable to younger kids as well as an older audience, mm-hmm. and um, it, it crosses a broader market, and, and those things are great. You know, and and fortunately, people still do that. But in comics, it seems like everything is turning into this, you know, uh, darker, more adult entertainment. And there's nothing for kids anymore. And I think that's another reason why it's hurt. So, uh, you know, if it meant that we could go back to doing the kind of comic books that I loved growing up, you know, the kind of good stories that that stick with you, uh, you know, you read them and you remember them you know all your life and you go back 10 years later 15 years later and say hey, you know I'm going to read that again I, I'd be happy to take the, the crappier paper and, and uh, production values and, and do that but um, I don't think that's going to happen I think the industry is going to go away before that happens unfortunately I think you're probably right there is yeah there's something something weird that they you know the idea of it being Kid friendly is something like old ages is kind of a, a dirty word, uh, which is weird. Like I actually uh, today I had never actually read it, but uh, Jeff Smith did a, a version of Shazam a number of years ago, and I guess they have a new version of, tra- of the of it in trade because obviously there's a Shazam movie coming out, and I was like, this is something I can actually show my son. Like I can read this comic with him. Shazam should be something that a kid can read and enjoy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's you know it's interesting because I friends that. The local comic shop were telling me one of the dilemmas they had recently with the new Deadpool movie. You know, Marvel's got the Deadpool movie out, and they've also put Deadpool in a Spider-Man animated cartoon or something, mm-hmm. which is marketed to kids. But then a parent comes in with their kids, and they're asking for Deadpool comics because the kid sees this in other markets. Oh, I love Deadpool. I want Deadpool. I want Deadpool. Well, they're not producing anything in the comics market of Deadpool that you can market to a kid that age. Well, why are you putting him in a kid's cartoon? Why are you including him somewhere and you're creating that interest and then when a kid goes out of his way to go into a comic shop, there's nothing there for him to get that's appropriate for him with that character. Hmm. It's it's so self-defeating. I just don't understand the people that are running these companies these days, what they're thinking. I don't know. I just, uh, you know, I, I just hope that uh, somebody will come along and figure out how, how to fix it, but I, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think that the fact that they're moving to Hollywood and, and, and now they're even starting to change the stories to reflect what's in the movies rather than, you know, the Captain America and Thor and Iron Man I grew up with don't exist anymore because everything's been changed and rewritten and relaunched and revamped and rebooted. To, to fit into these movie continuities and um, you know rather than keep them separate and as long as the movies are driving the comics uh, it, it, nobody's going to care about creating good comics anymore hmm. they're just going to keep you know oh well we got these movies we need to support this it's like a marketing arm of the movie industry now rather than being an industry of its own unfortunately it does sometimes feel that way <laughs> so Okay, how many fans out there are tired of hearing me bitch about this? Raise your hand. <laughs> well, Brett, thank you so much for spending so much of your time with me today. I really do appreciate it and uh, giving us a, a really good insight into kind of what makes you tick, what you think about comics, obviously, and also what you brought to the industry as well as an anchor. 
Well, thank you. Thanks for you know having me on and uh, exposing me to your audience and helping them get some good rest and napping here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing you know what you make out of all this mess. And um, thanks again. Yeah. Have a great night. Great night. You too. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye bye.